Welcome to Community Christian Anywhere. We're an online community of people who believe that even though life can be difficult, complicated, and tiring, Jesus offers a life that's easy, light, and full of rest. And the life Jesus offers isn't simply membership to a religion or a personal philosophy of life, but He offers to transform us into people who live and love just as He did in this world. And so we want to be a community who are committed to loving everyone just as Jesus has loved us. And so no matter who you are, what you believe about God or what you've done, we want you to be a part of this Jesus movement to love everyone always. And what we hope is that throughout our time together, you experience that God loves you and that He cares about your life. In fact, we say all the time, no matter what you think about God, we believe He can't stop thinking about you. We believe He's for you and He only has good things for your life. And so no matter where you're watching this from, on your phone or your lunch break, and hopefully not while you're driving, we believe that God is present with you right now. And if you can stay open to that, I believe He wants to make Himself real to you. And if at any point during this video you have a question or maybe you feel God speaking to you and you want to speak to someone about that, there's going to be a number on the screen the whole time. And you can text that number at any point and someone from our team will respond as soon as we can. Because even though right now this is just a video you're watching, we hope that your interaction with us moves from just being content that you consume to a community that you're committed to. And one easy way to get more involved with our community is by going to our website, cccanywhere.com. There are a lot of resources there, including some materials specifically designed for your children. And the best way for you to get involved with our community is by clicking on the card that on that website that says, join our Facebook group. You'll be taken straight to our Community Christian Anywhere group on Facebook where we can connect with each other during the week. All you have to do is click the join group button and you'll take one quick and easy step into community this week. And now let's get into our main idea for the day. Today, we're discussing an issue that has affected all of us listening, the COVID-19 pandemic. So where is God in the midst of a global pandemic? And how should followers of Jesus respond to all the changes in our world? Should we trust in science or our faith? Or do we even have to choose? These are the questions that we'll be addressing by listening to an interview between two brilliant minds. The interview was led by the BioLogos Foundation, which is an organization working to reconcile the scientific and faith communities. BioLogos was founded by Dr. Francis Collins, who's a physician and geneticist who led the Human Genome Project to map human DNA. And he's currently serving as the director of the National Institute of Health. In 2007, he wrote the book, The Language of God, in which he documents his conversion to Christianity, and he advocates for unity between the scientific and faith communities. In the interview we'll be watching today, Dr. Collins is joined by Dr. Tim Keller, a theologian and founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. Dr. Keller is also the best-selling author of The Reason for God, which offers rational reasons to believe in God and the claims of the Christian faith in an age of skepticism. Together, Dr. Collins and Dr. Keller will discuss where God is in the midst of this pandemic and all the suffering that's associated with it. But to begin, they discuss the important issue of whether science and faith conflict. Dr. Keller is asked why there are so many Christians who are skeptical of the scientific community. And so as we begin today, let's listen to his response. There seems to be something of a, a real suspicion, 
well, on the part of many, many people about uh, scientific expertise in this country. And it seems to be particularly acute amongst Christians or, and evangelical Christians, and I think that's fair. But let me just say two things. You, uh, you were asking, how do you reach out to people who are different than you? Well, by both critiquing and affirming. I mean, always. If you just simply say you're totally wrong or you're, you're totally right, you're not actually reaching out. Now, here's where I want to, and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't mind Francis uh, responding, especially this first one, is uh, Christians have got some reason to be wary, not so much of scientists, but of people who come uh, making, trying to make a case for something and invoking science, uh, when actually they're, they're, they're making moral decisions or philosophical, they're making uh, philosophical uh, arguments and they're cloaking it in science. So for example, uh, there really are a fair number of scientists who will take their cultural capital they have as scientists, because science has a lot of cultural capital because of all the accomplishments. And they'll say science, not too many, but there will be scientists who will say science proves that there's no God, that there's no soul, that there's nothing beyond this. And so, we, we, science tells us these things. And Francis knows that we could, we, I'm not going to mention them, we could, we could name, there's a lot of them right now that are making a lot of money in books saying science tells us these things. And so Christians look at that and we say, uh, well, what about Francis Collins? I'm sorry, science does not tell you these things. And for you to be, that's maybe what you might want to call scientism, yes. which is a philosophy that says there is no knowledge other than what can be, be empirically proven. And there is no... There's, not, there's no reality outside of the natural and the material. Uh, and so when you know that that's happened, and there's a, there's a history to that, uh, at that point, um, you know, you can see why Christians will start to get wary of people coming and saying, we've got this, uh, this agenda, and it's totally scientific. Uh, actually, uh, uh, the German philosopher Jürgen Habermas has a great little line where he says, science can tell you what you can do and what you can't do. And, and how to do it efficiently. But science can never tell you whether or not you ought to do it. That's always going to be a moral decision. And uh, that's a matter of faith. And therefore, you really shouldn't be throwing this on the scientists. The scientists give you the facts. They do give you the facts. But then decisions have to be made on basis of more than just that. Uh, and so I can understand that wariness. On the other hand, Christians should know better. And here's where I would push back badly on folks. Um, uh, her, uh, what, what was guy? Herbert Butterfield, some years ago, wrote a classic book called the, uh, let me see, I wrote it down here. Yeah, The, the Origins, Origins of, Modern, of Science. Modern Science. Yeah, right. And ba he basically makes his case there that says, you know, uh, Buddhism and Hinduism <clears throat> didn't believe the physical world was real. Uh, other ancient pagan uh, views saw the creation always, you can look at their myths, the creation was always a result of some kind of major battle of some kind. You know, nat nature is basically chaotic. It's, it's uh, power, uh, uh, power poles fighting against each other. Along comes Christianity and says there's one God, a personal God, who creates the world as an artist, a rational God, as it were. And it's in that soil that, Christian that, that science can grow. Because the idea is, oh, there's, a, there's nature and there's a uniformity to nature and there's an orderliness to nature. And the reality is that Christianity, it's, it was in the Christian West where the whole idea of modern science grew up because of, the, because of the view of God. And then you can just go to the Bible and you see, and I won't 
I've taken too long on this question anyway. You know, Jesus knows the difference between sick people and demonic people, demon-possessed people. Jesus does not see all problems as just it's a whole matter of demons. He knows the difference between a physical problem and a spiritual problem. First uh, Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, take some wine for your stomach, which is, you know, medicinal. Uh, you've got a place in Isaiah 38 where God says, I'm going to heal you, Hezekiah, but I want you to put some figs on the boil. And I'll, I'll use medicine in order to do it. He did, he, God just didn't wave his hand and say, okay, you know, I don't need medicine. I mean, the Bible is just filled with all kinds of reasons to trust science. Not scientism, but science. So we ought to, we ought to push back on the people that are just showing a lack of humility before uh, a, a, a discipline that actually grew up out of Christian soil. But on the other hand, I, want to be, I also want to be sympathetic to the way the words, the use of science to abuse Christians has been, it has been used. Sorry, that was kind of long, but. Oh, but it was right on point, uh, Tim. I actually agree with virtually all of that. In fact, one of the motivations uh, for the formation of BioLogos, which is sponsoring this uh, discussion this evening, was to try to counter the sense uh, that the only real voices one could hear about science and faith were on the one hand, the ones you just mentioned who are arguing that science has disproved uh, the, the need for God and we should just all get over it. And on the other hand, uh, very hard-edged fundamentalist views that said, you can't trust science because it disagrees with my interpretation of this verse or right. that verse. And most people, I don't think, really feel very comfortable in those extreme polls, but there wasn't a lot they could go to in this topic about science and faith. And that is partly why I wrote that book and partly now why BioLogos has come in to sort of occupy in a wonderful way that space and make a possibility of civil loving discourse amongst people trying to sort this out. So should followers of Jesus be fearful or skeptical of the scientific community? Is there coming a day or has the day already come where science will disprove the existence of God? Absolutely not. For followers of Jesus, there is no conflict between science and faith. We don't have to choose whether or not to believe solid and proven scientific evidence and claims because all truth is God's truth. Meaning if something is actually true, if it's scientifically true, then it won't disprove the existence of God or contradict what God has said about himself. In fact, Jesus said that his followers are to love God with all of their heart, soul, and mind. See, we're not called to turn our brains off at the door to follow Jesus. We worship a God who invites us to explore and examine this good and beautiful world that he's created for us. He wants us to know him in every possible way, including by knowing him through our study of his creation. So as followers of Jesus, we should have no fear of science. We should embrace scientific truth once it's been tested and proven because we believe science and all truth will point back to the creator God who loved us enough to die for us. Science and faith aren't two opposing sides of the same question trying to fight over the answer. Science and faith are answering different questions altogether. Science is the study of the natural world, and so science can answer the questions of what happened, how it happened, and even when it happened. But science isn't trying to answer the deeper questions of why. And I don't mean why is the sky blue questions. That is for science. Or even why does my check engine light keep coming on? And no one knows the answer to that question. The why questions that science can't answer are the deeper questions. Why am I here? 
Why does my life matter? See, these existential, metaphysical questions, they aren't for science. These are matters of faith. Science can tell us how life began on this planet and when it happened, but it can't tell us the why behind that. Only God can answer the big why questions in your life. And Jesus has already answered the big why questions of your life. And the answer is simple, because God is love. Why were you born? Because God is love and he created you to be the object of his love and affection. Why does your life matter? Because the God of this universe determined that you were valuable enough for him to die for you. All the important why questions in our life can be found in the person of Jesus. And he is the source of all of our hope. Now, maybe you're watching and you're pretty skeptical about all of this. Maybe it's hard for you to accept anything that hasn't been proven yet by science. And I'm so thankful you're joining in with us today. And I hope you'll keep watching this video. And maybe you'll go on our YouTube channel and watch some of the other videos in this series. Because I believe that if you continue to search for God with all of your mind, He'll reveal Himself to you in ways that maybe you weren't expecting. I just want to encourage you, open yourself up to the possibility that there is a God who loves you and He cares about you enough to leave you enough evidence for you to find Him if you want to. And I want to encourage you to reach out with any questions that you may have or any objections you may have to what we're talking about today. Just text the number that you see on the screen and someone from our team will be in touch with you today. Because God isn't asking you to leave your mind behind. In fact, Jesus said the command to love God with all your mind and your entire being, that's the first and greatest commandment. But he said there was a second that was equal to it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. You and I were made to self-giving servant love just as God loves. And the study of science is so beneficial in helping us to better know how to love our neighbors. We can use the knowledge and truth of science to better understand how to truly work for the good of others, which is the core of what love is all about. Because just as God is love, God created us to live in loving community with the people around us. And as I said from the beginning of this video, we want to be a community who live out the central command of Jesus to love everyone always. And so today, I hope you'll take a step into community with us here. So please take a moment now, reach out to us through text and begin a conversation. And as you do that, we're gonna move into the next part of this interview where Dr. Collins and Dr. Keller discuss where God is in the midst of a global pandemic. Does God care about our suffering? These are important questions and I hope you'll keep watching to hear the answers. What's God doing? We build this, we build this event tonight as where is God in a pandemic? Is God yeah. sitting waiting for us to ask him to help and to do something to help the scientists figure this out? Or how do we understand God's action and God's work in times like this in relationship to our prayers and to our efforts? Yeah, and by the way, I want you to know that I, Francis knows a lot more about theology than I know about medicine, but so it's not, it's not, quite, it's not quite a flip-flop here. Um, the, uh, well, if you ask the question, where's God? in the midst of all this. I mean, you have to start very theologically, and that is Christianity presents the only God that actually comes into this world and makes himself vulnerable, mortal, 
um, killable, as it were. Uh, he experiences weakness and, and hunger. Uh, he experiences physical weakness, uh, injustice, torture, and death. Uh, and he does this voluntarily in order to love us, in order to save us. And, uh, and because it's Jesus, when he rises from the dead and he goes to heaven, you could say, somebody might say, well, sure, he was in the midst of all of our human suffering, but no longer. Except that when he meets Paul, St. Paul, on the road to Damascus, where Paul gets converted, uh, it's in Acts chapter 9, uh, he says to Paul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Now, he'd been killing Christians, but he says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, uh, you know, he's looking at this glorious divine figure saying, uh, how in the world have I been hurting you? And obviously it means that he is present in this world, particularly among his people, in such a way that he is so connected to us that he actually is still uh, in the midst of the suffering. He still is. And uh, therefore, when you ask where is God, if you talk about the Christian God in the midst of the pandemic, he's right here. Uh, and that also, now, okay, I know what people say, so, but why did he allow it to happen? In John chapter 11, I preached on this the day after 9-11, or the Sunday after 9-11. I always go to John 11. Uh, Jesus shows up, Lazarus has died, Mary and Martha immediately start ask, basically asking questions, like, why did you let this happen? First of all, Jesus does not give an explanation. Now, we know what it is because of our, 2,000 years later, we've got the perspective, we know why Lazarus died. But at that point, Jesus does not give an explanation. What he actually does is he prays, he weeps, he helps, and he does so sacrificially because uh, the thing, if you, if you read the passage, the moment he raises Lazarus from the dead, uh, the religious leaders decide that's, that's, that's the final straw, we have to kill him. So Jesus knows he can't get, he really cannot get uh, Lazarus out of the grave without putting himself in. So he doesn't give an explanation He's just there in the midst, and he prays, and he weeps, and he helps, and he does it sacrificially, and that's where, we've got to, where we have to be. Now, here's the thing. When you see Jesus doing that without giving an explanation, we don't know why God's allowing the pandemic right now. We just know it's not because he doesn't love us. And he's got uh, reasons for why he hasn't stopped suffering yet. We do know, Romans 8 tells us, someday he's going to stop all sickness and death, everything. We just don't know why he hasn't done it yet. Uh, but we do know whatever those reasons are, he must have good reasons, it's not because he doesn't love us. And we should just be following what Jesus said. We shouldn't be trying to explain why, when people ask, why is God allowing this to happen? No Christian ought to give a good answer. I, no, no Christian ought to say, well, because of X, Y, Z. They should pray, help, weep, sacrifice, and be right near where everybody else is where everybody else is weeping and suffering. I think that's beautifully said. And I think the other thing is we have to recognize that this is not the most exceptional moment in all of history, even though it may be in our own lifetime. Very good. Sometimes I hear a little bit of that reflection that nothing like this bad has ever happened before. Well, goodness, back through human history, we've had many yeah. plagues. Christians have often been at their best in those plagues uh, by basically doing things that people around them would not do to try to help those who are suffering. And I hope we're doing that again uh, in a way that people recognize, although also we need to keep ourselves safe.
So yeah, and, and read the book of Job for heaven's sake and see whether you think there's a guarantee that God's not going to at times allow trouble to happen. It happens to us, but he promises to be there for us. I have uh, next to my desk a few scriptures that I have in the course of this pandemic uh, pulled out and printed up just so that they were close by when I was having one of those moments. And, and maybe my favorite of all of them is Psalm 46, which most of you will recognize. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. That does not say there will be no trouble. <laughs> it says... No. God is an ever-present help in trouble. I am really awfully relieved to know that God is here with us in this trouble, each one of us, in ways that can provide comfort and maybe even help us to learn something that we didn't know before about what humanity is all about and what our calling is at a time of trouble like this. The uh, mentioning Job is really helpful because both Job and Jesus are the two places in the Bible where you see someone who's an innocent sufferer. Now, technically, Job, being a regular human being, isn't perfectly innocent. Nevertheless, Job didn't deserve, he didn't do anything to deserve that suffering. And Jesus, when he went to the cross, didn't do anything to deserve his suffering. But because both Job and Jesus were faithful to God, without knowing why, but they, they didn't turn on God. They, they stayed faithful. Again, Job was shaky. It's really remarkable to see how shaky he was, but in the end, he held on. And in both cases, when you, when you, uh, when you experience innocent suffering, and in spite of your questions, you still stay faithful to God, do what you should do. It defeats Satan. In both cases, Satan is defeated because Satan basically says, oh, human beings, they just, they don't serve you, God, f except for themselves. So yeah. unless everything is going well in their lives, they're not going to serve you. It's, you know, uh, Satan says about Job, does Job serve God for nothing? Take away things. And, and so what happens in the end, if you are suffering, even though it's innocent, and you're faithful to God, you're defeating Satan. And you're learning, you're, you're also letting the suffering drive you like a nail further into God's love. And on the other end, you'll help people and you will actually find that you're closer to him, even though you don't know the reason why, just like Job didn't know, did not know the reason why. He was never told. So I think Job and Jesus, the two innocent sufferers, defeating Satan just by being faithful in the darkness, is a, is a, they're, they're very important models for us. So the question, where's God in our suffering? It isn't purely intellectual or academic for many of us. It isn't some hypothetical situation we can debate about. And you may be thankful for the answers that both Dr. Keller and Dr. Collins gave in that interview, but you might be thinking, okay, but what about me? Or what about my suffering? What about all the trouble this pandemic has caused for you and maybe your job or your relationships or the health of your loved ones? Many of us have dealt with increased levels of anxiety, and depression, or isolation and loneliness. What about all the racial injustice and the turmoil in our country? Does God care? Is God doing anything? Maybe your marriage is failing or you have tension between you and one of your kids. Maybe you're beginning to realize that you have a drinking problem or you've lost control of your porn habit and it's beginning to cause problems in your relationships. 
Maybe you're just dealing with a general level of hopelessness and darkness that feels impossible to overcome. And so when you ask, where is God in the suffering in this world? It's personal. It's painful. And I understand that. And I do not pretend to believe that this one video you watch is going to answer all of your questions about God or take away all the uncertainty, pain, and maybe anger you feel about your situation. But my prayer is that today's experience gives you some glimpse of hope. In fact, I want to spend some time right now just praying for you. I want to pray that you feel God's peace and that you see the hope that we have in Jesus. And when I talk about hope, I'm not talking about wishful thinking or a fake it till you make it kind of mentality. I'm talking about the hope that comes from following a God who entered into our suffering. As Dr. Keller said, we don't serve a God who sits outside of our suffering and says, wow, that's too bad. But in Jesus, God entered our world and he made himself vulnerable to our suffering. He suffered and even died on our behalf. But this wasn't pointless suffering which is often how our suffering feels, pointless. Jesus suffered for us so that he could put an end to the power of suffering once and for all. Jesus died so that our suffering and even our death wouldn't have the final say in our lives because Jesus' death wasn't the end. Jesus conquered death and he rose from the grave and he declared that anyone who chose to follow him could experience the same resurrection power in their life. They could live with the eternal joy, peace, and hope that exists in heaven right here and right now in this life. And so I want to pray today that you experience the peace and the hope of Jesus today. But even more, I want to pray that you experience the power and healing of God in your life. Jesus invited us to ask our Heavenly Father for whatever we want and that He would go before God on our behalf. Now, this doesn't mean we automatically get whatever we want, but we can always trust God is working for our good. And Jesus is the proof of this. So right now, I want to say a prayer for you and whatever situation or suffering you face right now. And I want to invite you to let us know about it. Please text that number on the screen right now and someone from our team will respond. We'd be happy to pray with you and to walk with you through whatever situation you face. Now let's go before our Heavenly Father in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that you have all power and authority over our world and our lives. And so I ask you to do what only you can do for those listening right now who are in a challenging circumstance or who are experiencing any kind of suffering. May your power and your healing be present in their lives. Though we don't know exactly what you'll do, we trust that you're working for our good at all times. And so I also ask, that you bring your eternal peace and joy and hope to all of us today. May we be encouraged and strengthened in the knowledge that suffering does not have the final say in this life. Jesus does. And the empty grave has already spoken loudly. May we live in your resurrection power today and every day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And now we're going to move into the time in our service where we celebrate and remember the death of Jesus on the cross for us by using the emblems of bread and juice to represent the body and blood of Jesus. Now we call this time communion. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, just use whatever emblems that you have on hand. It can be a piece of bread, a cup of juice, or even a cracker and a cup of water. 
And as you receive these elements today, focus on the fact that Jesus is our living hope. Jesus is the proof that we are not alone in the pain and the trials of this life. Jesus is with us, and he's preparing a place for us one day, free of all suffering and pain. But if you're here today and you're not sure that you buy into all of this, I hope you'll take the following moments to just reflect on all that you've heard so far today. Is it possible that there's a God who loved you enough to suffer on your behalf? Because if that's true, our suffering does not have to be meaningless. And maybe during this time, you could offer a prayer to God and ask him if he's real, that he'd make himself real to you. I believe he wants to do that. And as we take communion this morning, we're going to sing this beautiful song that reminds us of the living hope we have in our God who has overcome sin and death by conquering the grave and rising to new life again. So as we sing, let's receive the communion elements and celebrate the resurrection power available to us in Jesus. How great the chasm that lay between us How high the mountain I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven And spoke your name into the night Then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine? So great a mercy What heart could fathom Such boundless grace The God of ages Stepped down from glory To wear my sin And bear my shame The cross has spoken I am forgiven the King of Kings calls me His own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. silence the roaring light 
morning that sealed the promise. Your very body began to breathe out of the Salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living home. Hallelujah. Praise the one who sent me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Jesus Christ, my living hope. So for followers of Jesus, we have found all the answers to the important why questions in our life in Him. Why am I here? Why is life so hard? In Jesus' death on the cross, we see the answers to these questions. You are here because God loves you. It's the purpose of your existence to love and be loved by the God of the universe who loved you enough to die for you. And even though life is hard and sometimes it feels like God doesn't care, on the cross, we see Jesus taking all suffering and evil onto himself and defeating it once and for all when he rose from the dead. This is our living hope for this life and the next. And I believe that all of our deep why questions are paths that will lead us to Jesus. If we choose to meet him in our pain and in our uncertainty, if we don't hide from our questions and doubts, if we don't take easy answers or choose to walk away from the discussion, if we don't numb or drink or distract ourselves from our pain and we choose to meet God in our suffering, often, He makes himself most real to us there. So if you're here and you're not sure you believe all of this and you've got a lot of questions or doubts, maybe you got a lot of hurt or even anger at God or the idea of religion, I want you to know God can meet you right there. And we would like to as well. Please reach out to our team by texting that number on the screen right now. We'd love to talk with you about whatever thoughts you have about our subject for today. But for followers of Jesus, the most important question for us right now isn't why is this happening? The most important question for us is what now? What do we do in response to pain and suffering in our world? How should Christians respond in the midst of this pandemic? Well, Dr. Collins and Dr. Keller have some answers for this as well. So let's hear what they have to say. 
One more aspect of this I'd like to get you both to uh, comment on is that the suffering seems not to be proportionally spread around in our communities, yeah. right? Francis, on your NIH director's blog last week, uh, you wrote and interviewed about the disproportionate deaths of minority populations. And I'm, I haven't seen that there's anything particularly biological to this, right? Or is it just a reflection of our societal structures and our systems? And Tim, then, I wonder if you might join in about the church. And you mentioned Martin Luther's uh, speech or his letter earlier about how the church uh, may react during these times. Is there anything that the church can do in this particular societal situation we see where the least of these are suffering more than uh, their fair share in a time like this. Well, I can certainly say in terms of the bright light that this has shown on the dark situation of health disparities in this country it is deeply troubling. We know health disparities are there. People have cataloged them. We know that certain illnesses are more common in people who have less in the way of resources, a lower socioeconomic status, and so on. But COVID-19 has been ruthless in the way in which it has attacked those very individuals. In Georgia, where 30% of the population is African-American, 80% of the people in the hospital with COVID-19 are African-American. Uh, and it goes along with the health disparities that diabetes and hypertension are more common in those folks and we haven't figured out what to do about that. It goes along with the fact that many of those people are not able to go home and stay at home safely like I am now because right. they've got to get out there and make a living, uh, put food yeah. on the table and so they are not being given the chance uh, to protect themselves and the consequences are devastating. And I don't think any of us who care about justice and equity and loving your neighbor can look at this situation and not be deeply troubled. And if this is a wake-up call for our country and the way in which uh, health abilities and, and equities are very unfairly distributed, well, good for that. Maybe we need to remember this when the COVID-19 pandemic is over. And right now, we need to do everything we can to reach out to those communities, especially even more so than those who have more resources. Uh, Francis just went down the list of, there's, there's multiple reasons why the, the more economically, um, the less economically resourced communities mm. for tons of reasons uh, are being harder hit. Uh, they are, uh, they, they, they live in smaller spaces, they live closer together, they, they don't live just in there their apartments, they live around their apartments, they, they can't work from home. Um, there's, they also have more underlying bad health issues anyway because of, because of their, uh, for various reasons. So he, he's gone through the list. You were asking about the church, and that's a big question. But here's the reason why. Generally, you'll see that uh, the upper middle class churches, where uh, maybe the majority of the people can keep can work from home, keep their jobs, uh, versus the more blue collar and poor churches where most of the people are out of work, and where there's a lot more uh, illness and devastation and unemployment in their immediate neighborhood. One of the problems is that the churches in those neighborhoods, that those those hard hit neighborhoods, will not have the resources to reach out to their neighborhood at all. 
because like the majority of their own people are unemployed. The church might might close up. It doesn't have it, it can't pay the light bills. Meanwhile, the churches that are in more uh, you know posh and affluent neighborhoods are not going to have nearly as much um, uh, near as many needs in their neighborhood, and therefore there needs to be some kind of partnership between uh, churches with more means, Christians with more means, and the churches in those hard-hit neighborhoods, mm -hmm. if they're going to be able to respond. Uh, after 9-11, uh, we knew that something like, I forget now the numbers, it was so long ago, something like 17,000 small businesses south of 14th Street instantly, literally went up in smoke. And there were hundreds of thousands of uh, folks, many of whom were immigrants, uh, who lost their jobs. And uh, Redeemer was able to go into a major uh, mode of helping people who had lost their jobs. Uh, of course, we didn't have the quarantine, we didn't have the distancing, social distancing, any of that stuff. Nevertheless, it was partly because people f actually sent money to Redeemer from across the country, just saying, we're very concerned about New York, please help. But you see, the situation was, New York was much more hard hit, the rest of the country was not that affected. Uh, mm -hmm. People knew about Redeemer, sent us the money, and we were able to really do it quite a bit. Something like that's going to have to happen, I think, with the more uh, affluent churches, with the churches that are in the harder hit communities, if they're really going to respond to this. Are there mechanisms that you see that are starting to be put in place that might help to facilitate that? I hear of them. I better not mention any because I'm not sure I'm well. Uh, no, I know. Oh no, I know. There's a uh, the game's afoot, as Sherlock Holmes would say. It's, I mean, there definitely, are, there definitely are people working on it. Good. One more question, if you might both respond to, uh, about the image of God. The image of God is one of the most central doctrines of creation. And I wonder, how does this bear on our conversation here, both of the value of the least of these who are particularly vulnerable to the disease, but then also with respect to our duties and roles toward our fellow humans and the rest of creation, the image of God in us, and how that might be uh, imaged to the rest of, rest of the people. Mm. Francis, go ahead. Well, you could take that in a bunch of directions, couldn't you? I guess I'm thinking as you raise the question about this debate about is it okay uh, to take some risks about this pandemic uh, by allowing people to be uh, released uh, from where they have been sequestered and quarantined, even if it means uh, there may be more cases happening as a result. But after all, most of those are perhaps the older people or those with chronic illness or perhaps somebody in a nursing home or somebody who's homeless and maybe that's a trade-off uh, that we should basically accept because we need to get our economy going again christians should be very careful of that one i think yes the image of god applies to all of us uh, c.s lewis said if you could see any one of those individuals uh, for, way, for what they really are as a spiritual creature, you would fall on your knees, even those that we consider the least of them. We of all people ought to be full of compassion and concern uh, for every human being and to consider that any of those might actually be uh, something a sacrifice would be worth taking. 
that ought to give us a great deal of trouble. Now, I know I sound like one of those public health people who's not paying enough attention to the economic damage, and I don't mean to say that's not been horrendous in terms of what it's done to people's lives and even caused health issues and even life-threatening issues. That's true, too. But let's be really thoughtful about what we stand for, which is the value of every human life, no matter who it is. Oh, yeah. Listen, I'm just going to build on what Francis said. I, you know, um, I think the image of God does stop us from moving into what you might call a hard utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. Now, utilitarianism is a, is a school of ethics, you know, John Stuart Mill, that said the, uh, the greatest good for the greatest number. And, um, and therefore, if it means sacrificing a smaller number for the good of the, of the, of the, the whole, that's fine. Uh, the Christians can't go there completely. I mean, when I say, it seems obvious that, uh, that if everybody's in the image of God, then everybody's in the image of God, including the majority, not just the threatened minority. But, the, but um, nevertheless, it gets you, it, it does mean that a single life is really very valuable, and you really cannot say you can't do that hard utilitarianism a quick example i know we probably don't have time in 1884 this this really happened in 1884 a a british uh ship called the minionette british uh uh i forget what kind of ship it was it sunk there were four survivors and they were in a lifeboat together and they knew that they were not going to be able to survive probably because they had no food and they were out of the they were out of the currents out of the trade winds unless they were able to uh, you know, stick it out longer. So three of them killed and ate the fourth guy, because the fourth guy was an orphan, had no relatives, no parents, no children. He was like 17 or 18 years old. All the others had wives, children, everything. And they they sat down in a very utilitarian way, by the way, and said, you know, if we're all going to die unless he dies, and he doesn't have any, you know, basically it was it was a total utilitarianism. They killed him and ate him. And uh, when he got back, by the way, they went to court, and believe it or not, the court exonerated them because at the time the utilitarian approach to justice was in the ascendancy. I think Christians would say, sorry, that was not by his consent. Is the man in the image of God? He has the right not to be killed and eaten. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's hard utilitarianism. I still know that there's such a thing as calculus. Everybody knows, for example, if you shut down all the interstate highways in the country, there'd probably be fewer deaths. And therefore, there is some kind of uh, calculus that goes on it's at a very high level, but not at the level. I don't want to do that utilitarianism right now with the virus. So that, that's what the image of God does. It does create a bit of a roadblock for people who want to be utilitarian. And I would say we can't go all the way there. See, followers of Jesus believe that every human being is made in the image of God. And because of that, every human being has immense value to him and to us. Therefore, our response to this historic time in our world should reflect this idea. Every interaction we have with people in person or online should be completely saturated in the love of God. There is so much hopelessness and despair, so much suffering and pain in our world right now. And here at Community Christian Anywhere, we want to be a community who love everyone always. And although COVID-19 has brought a lot of challenges and tragedies to our world and to our lives, It's also given us a new opportunity to share the love of Jesus with those in our world. So I don't know what this looks like for you, 
wherever you're watching this from. I don't know what opportunities you have, what resources you have, or what people you have the opportunity to interact with. But I want to challenge you this week to do something to love someone this week. Maybe it's doing a random act of kindness. Maybe it's donating some money or volunteer hours to an organization that's bringing relief in the midst of this pandemic. Maybe it's something creative you could do to share God's love with someone this week. But whatever it is, let's not lose this unique opportunity to share the love that Jesus has shown us with our world and with the people that he's put in our lives. This is the kind of community we want to be a community that doesn't just celebrate the love Jesus has for us, but we want to share it with everyone always. And we'd love to hear what you're doing to love everyone always. So feel free at any point this week to text the number you see on the screen with some ways that you're at work in your community or how you loved someone made in the image of Jesus this week. We'd love to celebrate that with you and support you in any way that we can. But most of all, I hope today's experience was meaningful for you. And I hope what you take away from everything is that God is for you and that we are too. And if anything today raised questions for you or maybe you felt like God was speaking to you and you wanna speak to someone about that, please text the number on the screen right now. Someone from our team will get in touch with you. And as always, we want your experience with us to be more than just content you consume but a community you can be committed to. So please take a moment right now, go to our website, cccanywhere.com to find out how you can get more connected with us. There are ways to get involved in a virtual small group to discuss what you're learning here, and even resources for your children. But the best way to get involved in our community is by clicking on the card on our website that says, join our Facebook group. That link will take you straight to our Community Christian Anywhere group where if you click the join group button, you'll take one easy step towards getting more involved with our community here. I hope to see you there. And as you leave today, please carry this thought with you. No matter what you think about God, He can't stop thinking about you.